Welcome to the Want to Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I talk with Gary Arndt, who lives in Minneapolis. Gary Arndt is the creator of everythingeverywhere.com. He is a super well-known traveler. In this case, he doesn't have to travel to see any action. George Floyd was murdered in his city. As of today, May 30th, there are riots and protests all across the United States. And while we're talking, there are all sorts, there's all sorts of chaos that's happening in the background, just outside his apartment window. And you can actually hear the sounds of sirens, etc. And honking horns. It's chaos, helicopters. He's in the middle of a very exciting place for all the wrong reasons. I really hope everybody has a brain and doesn't use George Floyd's senseless death as a reason to do even more senseless acts of violence and destruction right in the middle of the corona apocalypse. This is really the last thing we really need. It's so incredibly stupid and it makes me sad for our species and makes us look like a bunch of ridiculous primates with no frontal lobe. Welcome to the Wonder Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Stefan. In this episode, I have Gary Arndt back. And Gary... You know, there's a story that I saw on your Instagram, and uh, by the way, we're recording this on May 29th, and there's just been uh, riots in Minnesota. And my favorite story I thought we could start off with is when you talk to some Somalis. Can you tell us about that, Somalis in Minnesota? So I was walking, I got off the main street, and this car pulls up to me, and there are four young women in it, all Somali. Uh, you know, head coverings on. Said, Sir, can we ask you a really weird question? And I'm like, it's a really weird time. So sure. <laughs> uh, so they were from the town of Wilmer, Minnesota, which is a smaller community. Uh, I want to say it's like, I don't know, an hour, 90 minutes out of the Twin Cities. It's kind of a farming town. And they had come into the Twin Cities so she could, one of the girls could do her uh, interview for college. And they got stuck in Minneapolis when all the stuff was going on and they didn't have much gas in their car and all the gas stations are shut. Uh, you can't buy gas. You can't get food right now. And uh, they, they didn't know how to get the hell out. And the street that they were on to normally get out of here would, would take them right through the heart of everything. And so I just said, well, you know, go ahead, take a right. And that will take you far away in the opposite direction of everything. You should find some gas stations that are open in the next town over, which is not far. It's only like, you know, a few miles away. Um, just stay on that road and it'll eventually take you to this highway and that'll get you out. And, but they were, they were terrified. And I, and I told them like, you know, what's happening here. Right. And they go, yes, we want to get the <laughs> hell out of here. Um, right. But yeah, there's a, a, a sizable Somali population in Minnesota generally, and, and particularly where I live. The irony of this whole thing is just that, you know, we associate Somali Somalia with, you know, war and fighting and chaos and danger. And here they came all the way out to sleepy Minnesota to kind of like escape. All I this. was thinking about that today because, you know, I got to wonder, it's like we came all the way over here for this. Uh, but, exactly. Or, you know, the other thing that some of them could be thinking is, oh, this is nothing. <laughs> right. You know, because I've talked to uh, some of the local Somalis. And, you know, I said, well, I, you know, I've been to parts of Africa. I, mean, I haven't been to, to Somalia. And I'd say, well, where are you from in Somalia? And uh, the most common answer is, is Mogadishu or, or in that area. So I think that they've, you know, this is, they can do this standing on their head. Uh, I, think, I think it's interesting that you, the world traveler, who's been to all sorts of places, all sorts of crazy situations, that probably the craziest situation you've ever had is currently right now in your hometown. This is probably the second craziest. So 2010, I was in Bangkok when the red shirt protests were going on. And mm -hmm. one day, so there were about 100,000 protesters in Bangkok. And one day they decided they were going to protest at the prime minister's house, which happened to be like two blocks away from where I was staying. So I'm like, okay, I got to photograph this. So I head out. I'm a white guy with a big camera. And there's all these international news agencies, and they got helmets on and armbands saying media and all this stuff. And I'm just a dude with a camera. And uh, I'm, I'm stuck between several thousand very angry protesters and several hundred cops in full-blown riot gear. And I was not as scared 
I won't, I, I, I wasn't that scared because I knew I wasn't a part of it and everyone knew I wasn't a part of it because I wasn't Thai. And so I wasn't too concerned about my safety. Uh, last night, you know, there was a, a small, very loud crowd of young men that seemed, if they weren't drunk, they were certainly acting as if they were drunk. And I was probably more <laughs> scared with that, which is why I headed off the side street to get off the main street, how I ran into these girls. And very close to where I met these women, uh, there was a towing company. So they had their garage and, and their lot. And there were three very large guys standing out in front with the garage door open. They had placed cement, uh, those kind of cement blocks that you see like when they do construction. You know, they're like, um, you know, that you'd put up. So that was ringing their business. They had a bulldozer in their driveway with the blade up. And they were basically sitting out here as kind of a, you know, don't, don't screw with us. Um, there were so many, this was at, you know, nine thirty ten last night, businesses that were scrambling to cut plywood to get it to cover up all their windows. Uh, and even in a couple cases, it didn't help. The Apple store got hit twice uh, in the last two nights. Which, which lets you know that I think a lot of this, you know, there's a lot of legitimate anger that's going on in this community. And then there are some people that are using this as an excuse to just steal. Yeah, I mean, that's... And that's oh, in every every time yeah. you have something like this that kind of happens. Yeah, totally. Um, and what surprised you the most? I mean, you you're, you had these great Instagram stories. And I, I encourage everybody to go to your Instagram. Can you tell everybody your Instagram handle is everything everywhere? Yeah, just everything everywhere. Um, yeah. and you'll, you'll see one of my highlights where I stored the stories. It just says Minneapolis 2020. So you can see them all there and I'll probably be posting more tomorrow. Um, one of the things I did not see mentioned on the news is that there were so many people who were out walking around Lake street, which is the main area where all this is happening that had brooms and garbage bags and they were just cleaning up. They were, uh, cleaning up the broken glass. They were, uh, just doing everything. And it were, there were there were actually more people there to clean than there was stuff to clean up. And it kind of reminded me after 9-11 in New York, you had so many people that lined up to give blood and there just weren't many people that needed blood because there were very few people that were injured. You know, most people just died. Uh, and here too, you had more people willing to clean than there was, you know, broken glass because it got cleaned up pretty quick. Uh, there was a lot of graffiti a lot of graffiti. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, most of it, but not all, most of it was scrawled on the plywood that companies had set up over the, the windows, uh, which is good because when they take down the plywood, then the graffiti will go with it at least. Uh, so that was kind of a nice Minnesota touch. I think they were thinking of other people. Um, right, exactly. And there what was, about George, oh. George Floyd? I mean, what is his, uh, what have you learned about the man? Who died? He, uh, one of his best friends was an NBA player. Um, he's, he was from Houston, not from Minnesota originally. He moved up here. I think he, he got a, a trucking job. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like sometimes you see the people who are victims of this and you learn more about him and it's, oh, they had this long criminal past. I, I think he had some brushes with the law, but nothing major. Uh, everyone who knows him seems like he was a really good guy. Um, and, you know, even what he was accused of, if true, just, just for the sake of argument, certainly didn't warrant anything that was done to him like this. Um, Do you think that the cop that did it to him, I mean, he just honestly really, I mean, he didn't intend to kill him. I guess he was probably just as surprised, I'm guessing. But uh, was he or do you think he just had this, you know, anger in him that he really wanted to kill? George no, I, I don't think he I'm sure he didn't try to kill him, but he was certainly... One of the big problems, I think, is that over the last 50 years, since the start of the war on drugs, and this accelerated at the end of the Cold War, is that police in the United States have become militarized, that they view themselves as uh, part of the military. And what happened in Minneapolis last year is that the mayor told the police department they were to stop doing warrior training. And what warrior training is, is that police basically train as if they were a military unit. Well, the problem is, even though they both wear uniforms and have guns, what, a, what military units do are very different than what police do. Police are public servants. They're peacekeepers. 
officers of the law. It's a very different job than being a soldier where you're dealing with enemy combatants. And police now view the public as enemy combatants, that they're going out and they got to watch out for themselves because everyone's out to get them. And so they escalate situations, you know, from zero to a hundred and they always go for the most extreme option, uh, because they, they, they feel that, you know, they're a threat to themselves or to someone else. And it, it, we've seen it time after time again uh, in New York where they choke that guy to death for selling a loose cigarette. Um, and, and things like this has happened, or they're, they're very quick to shoot. And it's also things into doing no-knock warrants. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the term swatting. No. Ba- so I could, let's say, call the police where you live. And say, hey, Francis Tapon, he's uh, holding his wife hostage with a gun. Mm. And then they'll come in with a SWAT team, and there's you yes. know, a 5 to 10% chance that they'll shoot you. Right. right. So I could murder you by police by sending in right. an anonymous request. Uh, I've heard, actually, now as you say, yeah. yes. I so they did this. The, reason, the only reason that could possibly work is because people know in advance that the police are going to overreact. And to be sure, there are cases, if you have an active shooter or a hostage or something like that, where you do need a SWAT team or you do need specialists to come in, and it's an armed situation. But most situations are not like that. And it's gotten to a point where people now expect police to act in such a manner that they're, of course, being in, in anticipation of this, may get violent beforehand, and it's kind of spiraled out of control. So I think what you really need is sort of a complete restructuring of how policing is done in America because this, this warrior notion and this notion that they're part of the military has really seeped in over the last several decades. There is a uh, police force in Arizona. I forget where it is. So when the cold war ended, a lot of the excess uh, surplus military gear was given to police departments. So there are literally police departments in America with tanks with armored personnel carriers. And this one in Arizona has a belt-fed 50 caliber machine gun. Now, what the fuck do you do with a belt-fed <laughs> 50 cal? That is, there's only one thing that's used for, right? And that's right. murdering large numbers of people. There is right. no situation, none, for which a police force would ever need a weapon like that. If you could create a situation where they wouldn't need it, then you bring in the National Guard or the, the military, right? And, and they are the belt-fed machine gun people, not the cops. But they just want all this military gear, and it, it's developed this sort of ethos. And to go back to what I originally said, so when the mayor of Minneapolis said the, the police can no longer do warrior training, the police union said, F you, we're going to keep doing it. And that, mm-hmm. I think, in a microcosm was part of the attitude of the police in Minneapolis. It's like, what are you going to do? We're the cops. You know, do you think that, do you think that Minneapolis has changed in the last uh, few years or is this, is this thing, whole thing surprised you? Did you see it coming or it's just completely out of left field? I'm a middle-aged white guy. I don't, you know, I, the, the cops don't bother me. Uh, there's a cop every single day. And I do mean literally every single day at the grocery store, uh, I go to, I live in an area called Uptown, um, and there's always a cop there at night, just, just hanging out, just has a, a presence, which is what shocked me, the fact that I've seen no police anywhere in town the last two nights, because they're usually kind of somewhere, you know, just, just to, to have a presence. So I, I don't think Minneapolis is the worst city in America when it comes to the police or race relations, uh, but I don't know if that's saying much. Um, right. I've had I've had a lot of people message me on Instagram today. Uh, you know, one guy from Baltimore and, and a couple other cities that was surprised as well because Minnesota usually has a reputation as being rather nice. You know, we don't. I, most people, if you're from out of the United States, probably know absolutely nothing about it. Prince was from I, here, and that's about I, it. I remember you took a picture of one of the graffiti out there and it said Minnesota nice and racist. <laughs> well, Minnesota nice is sort of the. Um, how they always describe people, which is basically, it's like a passive aggressive, nice, or, you know, they're nice to your face and they'll stab you in the back. And that's what Minnesota nice means. 
so how's you dealing with the coronavirus then? Uh, honestly, it hasn't affected my life much at all. Because when I'm not traveling, I don't ever go within a, a few blocks normally of where I live. So, you know, I go to the store, I get some food, and I work in, in my apartment. And then the coronavirus hit, and I just kept doing exactly the same thing. Uh, so it, it, it hasn't been... I don't think it's been any different here than it really has anywhere else. The big difference is once it started to warm up. So this started in March. It was still pretty cold. You know, temperatures around freezing. Now it's pretty warm. There's a massive difference in what happens when it warms up here. Usually once it hits about 60 degrees, uh, it just kind of explodes in activity. And you just have hundreds of people that are eating outside on the, on the sidewalk and getting out and walking and biking. Uh, it's a huge difference. And I started walking, you know, trying to get, you know, 10 to 20,000 steps in a day. Uh, and I live right next to five different lakes that I can walk around. Um, and there, there's so many people out every day, especially when it gets really warm, that for all practical purposes, if you were out walking, you would never know that anything was going on. Right. And you're, and you're expecting some less activity tonight because it's getting a little colder at the moment. And so the riots that happened, happened during warm nights. Uh, yeah. And let me put that into context. So it was like 70 degrees last night, which is warm for, you know, Minneapolis. And it's dipping down into the low 50s, maybe get down to 50 degrees tonight. So I think that'll dampen in a little. There's a curfew in place. The National Guard is out. Uh They've, they've already burned a lot what, what could be burned, so there's that. Uh, I was, before we started talking, I did watch some news. There was a protest going on in front of the police, but it mainly involved people, you know, holding their hands up and kneeling, saying, don't shoot. It wasn't the uh, destructive stuff that you've seen the last two nights. So I don't expect there to be any major fires or anything like that anymore. So you think it's going to kind of die down after this and, and things are just going to go into court and, and the whole proceedings regarding those police well, officers, those four police officers? Only two of them have been indicted and uh, put into custody. So I think there's certainly demand for the other two, but at least doing that today, especially the main guys who kneeled on his neck, uh, that will take a lot of the wind out of people's sails. And I think these things kind of tend to just burn out after a while. Uh, people have vented their anger. But, right. you know, that'll, that'll be a short-term fix. But I do believe in the long run they're going to have to do something. Because the problem with policing in the U.S., this guy that, 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 that killed him, he's had 18 complaints. I thought it was 25, but yeah, you're probably oh, it, right. I heard 18, maybe it is. But this notion mm -hmm. of, you know, 18 strikes and you're out, just, <laughs> there's, there's no other job on earth where you could do that. And, you know, that's why police have this idea that they can get away with anything. I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase qualified immunity. No. It's a Supreme Court uh, doctrine that came out regarding uh, whether or not uh, law enforcement officials can be held liable. And it's, a, it's an insane doctrine that says unless there has been a court case where exactly the same thing has been done, a police officer cannot be held accountable for what they did. So let's say in this case, it goes to trial, goes to a jury, they convict him, they find him guilty. On appeal, they can say, well, I've qualified, he had qualified immunity because there's never been a case before of two cops holding a guy down and a third cop kneeling on his neck where the guy died. So because that never happened before, there was no expectation that the police should think that it was wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's right. insane, right? There's, any, right, there's right. an infinite number of things that you could do that are wrong and to say, well, okay, the first person to do it gets a free pass is crazy. So there's right. a court case that's coming before the court, I believe in this term, that is going to deal with this issue of qualified immunity. And I think it's going to be really important to see what the court does. Because it's, it's one of those things that just don't, it does not make sense. It's like uh, asset forfeiture, right? Where the police can pull someone over, take their vehicle, and never charge them with a crime. And just take it. They can just right. take money and whatever. And it, it's... It violates every sensibility, I think, that, you know, America was founded on. And it's crazy that there are, uh, you know, state governments and local governments that encourage it. And they basically encourage it. So it's a way of getting revenue. Did you ever feel 
afraid during all your walkabouts in your backyard there, which is the epicenter, effectively, of these riots? Not really. No, not, not today. Not in the middle of the day. Not at all. Uh, there were lots of people walking around. I wasn't the only one with my phone out taking pictures of stuff. Um, you know, None it, of the violence, it doesn't sound like any of the violence is directed toward other citizens, other people. No, it to, sounds the, like it's, to the best of my knowledge, uh, and there could be something I just don't know about, no one has been hurt or attacked in any of this, uh, at least not purposefully. Like I said, to the best of my knowledge. I don't right. think that that was what it was about. Um, like I said, I did encounter this, this group of guys that were walking down the street and they were really boisterous. So I just sort of got off the street and took a side street. Uh, but that would have been about as, as dangerous. You know, everyone keeps telling me, Oh, stay safe. I'm pretty far away from the, the epicenter of this. I'm not worried. The odds of something happening to me are one of your things. I think one of your stories, I could see like you were filming smoke in the distance. Oh, Oh, I, I was filming. No, uh, I don't know if you saw all of them, but there was literally fire still in one of the, the burning buildings. No, no, no. From your apartment building. Oh yeah. That was last night. And I, so this today I went and found out where the actual building was, but yeah, I could see smoke last night. That was about a mile from me. Yeah. Um, so, so, but and so there was a, another building, so I couldn't see it directly, but I could see the smoke that was going up. Yeah. So your travel plans are still on hold, I imagine, along with the rest of the nation. I have no plans right now. I don't know. I'm actually, it, I'm using this as an opportunity to do a lot of things. And one of it's, you know, to just sort of restructure my whole business. Uh, I'm going to be planning some, some tours for, I may do one actually this year still uh, in the American Southwest, a, a tour of like national parks. I think that'll be you know, aimed at Americans who may, it may be difficult to travel internationally still for the rest of the year. So if we can do something in the U S that's outdoors, not indoors, um, I, you know, that's something we might be able to pull off and then planning stuff for the next two years for 2021 and 2020, uh, different destinations around the world. Tell us about your amazing weight loss, Gary. Let's end it on a good note. And so this is a, a remarkable story. I don't, I don't think it's that much remarkable than anyone else. Uh, so, I started traveling in 2007 and I traveled full time for about nine years. And so for over a decade, because even after I, I got a place, I just, I kept eating in restaurants, right? You eat out all the time um, mm-hmm. and you can control what you order, but you can't really control how it's prepared or the ingredients that go in. And so I just ate like crap for a long time. I would go out and photograph and uh, you always want to maximize your time when you're out walking around before, you know, the sunset. So I would just have fast food or something. And I gained a lot of weight over uh, the, the last decade. And How much weight did you gain? What was when you, before you started, roughly? I uh, probably gained about 50, 60 pounds over so, 10, so over from 10 what, years. From, from what weight to what weight? I was probably about 215 pounds when I started. And I went up to like 275 at my peak. Wow. And, and, you're, and you're six feet tall or something? A little under that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I just realized eventually you hit a point where it's like, all right, I got I to gotta do something about this. And so mm-hmm. I eventually just started, um, I went on an, an extremely low carbohydrate diet. Uh, Which is any particular name or? or uh, is it? Carnivore diet. I just eat meat. Okay. That's all, that's all so, I eat. D- that's the name of the diet. It's called carnivore. Uh, yeah, basically, it's just eating yeah. um, mainly beef, but you know, organ meats, uh, some seafood. Uh, you know, it's nutritionally complete. You know, beef liver is the most nutrient dense food there is. Period. It, it has mm-hmm. pretty much everything. But more importantly, um, I, I spent a, you know the last two years probably doing more research into nutrition than I did into travel, and. Uh, you know, what causes is, you know, fat, the creation of adipose tissue is the hormone insulin. And that's why, you know, so many type two diabetes has exploded in the United States. And that's basically because of blood sugar. And if you look at the amount of sugar that Americans consume, I think it went up from four pounds a year around the year 1900. And it's approximately 125 pounds a year uh, today. (laughs) 
but it, it's like 26 <laughs> but sugars and everything sugar high fructose corn syrup and a lot of that had to do with this notion of uh you know low fat is healthy and this all came about because of really one guy in the 1950s who had this hypothesis that fat was was damaging and he kind of pushed this through. He got on all the important boards and he got the United States government to adopt this policy of, uh, you know, the, the food pyramid. And it was right when they, they adopted the food pyramid when obesity started to shoot up. Because when they started taking fat out of food, what did they replace it with? Sugar. You know, that's, right. you know, because of taste. Uh, you remember like Snackwell cookies. They're fat free. Everything's fat free. Right. And it was also, uh, so we've seen an in, a, a dramatic increase in uh, carbohydrates, you know, primarily through sugar, uh, refined grains. So normally when people had bread, it was not as refined and pure as the stuff we're consuming now. And then the third thing was, the big thing is seed oil. Um, mm. Crisco was the very first thing that was promoted as this. And it was, it, the word Crisco uh, came from cottonseed oil. So it was originally used as a byproduct of cotton and it was used for machine lubrication. And then they realized it kind of looked like lard. So they began, uh, Mar Procter & Gamble, which was a soap company, began marketing it uh, to housewives as the new modern alternative. And uh, they basically donated a crap load of money to this small organization called the American Heart Association, which at the time was just a small group of cardiologists, uh, to start promoting things on radio shows. And then all of a sudden, you know, corn oil, canola oil, uh, cottonseed oil, and all these different oils that... You, have you ever been to a farmer's market and seen anyone sell artisanal corn oil? No. No, you can't, and you never will, because... It's an highly industrialized process that requires filtering and uh, removal of odors and all this stuff. And it can't be made by a farm. You've seen olive oil, I'm sure, uh, you mm -hmm. know, across Europe because it's very simple. You take olives, you smush it with a rock, the oil comes out, olive oil. That, that's really all there is. It's cold pressed. But uh, no human being ever put this crap in their body before a hundred years ago. And we went from never having ingested this as a species to this being the healthy alternative. And, uh, Speaking, hold on. But what about this regarding healthy alternatives? What about deep leafy greens? Because it seems like few diets I've ever heard of a diet that doesn't like deep, deep leafy greens. What about you? Uh, it depends on what the leafy green is, but here's the other thing. Uh, most of those are also things we never ate until recently. Broccoli didn't exist until the early 20th century. Um, if you ever watch a James Bond film at the beginning, the producer of the early James Bond films, this is, and I think maybe the, his name is still on some of them, uh, but the Sean Connery ones was Albert Broccoli. That's not a coincidence. His family literally invented broccoli. And it, it, it comes from the mustard seed plant, as does cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and a bunch of other things. Uh, they, they were, you know, we through crossbreeding and, and plant grafting and stuff like that. Um, things like spinach are really high in oxalates. Everyone says, oh, there's iron in it. Yeah, but it's not heme iron, which is basically the kind that humans can, can ingest. And if you look at the vegetables that are in it, like it'll have... Uh, vitamin K1, but not vitamin K2. And vitamin K2 is what our body can really use. And it's easy. It's bioavailable. Vitamin K1, which is the kind found in plants, is not. Vitamin D3, which, again, comes from animal food and from your body produced in the skin, is what we really need. Vitamin D2, which comes from a lot of plants, is not readily bioavailable. There's no vitamin A in plants. Carrots, which are often talked about as being a source of vitamin A, really have beta-carotene, which is a provitamin, meaning our body can convert uh, beta-carotene to vitamin A, but it does so at like a 3 to 5% conversion rate compared to regular vitamin A, which you could get if you just had beef liver or, or something like that. Vitamin B12 is only found in animal products, uh, EPA, DHA, uh, chloine, carotene, taurine. There's a whole bunch of things that you can only get in animal products, and that's why, you know, there's been a rash of videos in the last two years of vegans who are giving up veganism because of health reasons. You know, their hair falls out. They, they're having uh, dental issues. They have, uh, you know, a lack of mental clarity. 
So yeah, you can, you know, and there are, there are, and you've probably met some of these people in Africa, like the Masa who basically just, mm-hmm. in Kenya. The Maasai. Yeah, who yeah, just Maasai. eat, you know, they're ranchers and they basically just eat meat. The Inuit in, uh, you know, northern Canada and Alaska who basically live on diets of only meat. So humans can do it. It, it can be nutritionally complete. Um, Prior to the advent of agriculture, they have what's called uh, nitrogen-15, which is a stable isotope. And the higher up the trophic chain you are, basically you see higher amounts of uh, nitrogen-15. So plants have very low amounts of it. Herbivores that eat the plants have... Sorry to interrupt you, but I hear a helicopter. Yeah. Uh, Probably a news helicopter. There was one last night that was kind of hovering... uh, in fact, just before we started, I stuck my head out the door just to see where they were. But this one's really kind of close. I wonder if they're just, because um, the curfew's there tonight, if they're just checking to see where people are gathering. Right. But, uh, Sorry, anyways, I interrupted uh, you. Uh, Nitrogen 15, yeah, so they can actually go back. And if they have a bone sample from an animal, they can tell whether it was a herbivore or a carnivore. Uh, based on uh, nitrogen-15 and, and a couple other stable isotope things. And they can do it pretty well. So, like, uh, and humans basically are at or above, like, a lion. Uh, so mm-hmm. our diets are estimated were about 90 to 95% meat prior to the advent of agriculture. And we've even seen, like, there's been, like, a decrease of about 10% in uh, homo sapien uh, brain size since the advent of agriculture. So a- agriculture did a lot of great things for us on a social level. It allowed us to store calories, which we re- you really can't do. That's the big downside to like hunter-gatherer lifestyles, but also allowed advanced civilization and standing armies and kings and stuff like that. Uh, but from Science, <clears throat> probably too. Yes, all those things, because you can have a division of labor, which you can't do if everyone is involved in hunting and, and getting their own food. Um, but grains were never really what humans ate, you know, since humans were human, you know, going back about 2.5 million years where you have the, the homo genus first came about, uh, where you draw the line of, of modern humans, you know, about 250,000 years ago. But most anthropologists view that where we diverged from other hominids and from other sapiens like you know gorillas and and chimpanzees our closest relatives is that we ate meat Uh, we first scavenged it and then when we learned to harness fire and later control fire so the the thought is that we would find fire from like a lightning strike or something and you would have a firebrand and carry it with you for as long as possible and that allowed us to cook food and the fundamental thing that separates us from other animals is our ability to cook every culture that they've ever found uh, cooks food. And there was a lot of things that we, we could not eat, primarily plant foods uh, that would otherwise be toxic, like cassava. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure you've had cassava in your travels. Uh, of course. Yeah, but you can't eat raw cassava, right? You'll die. Right. But you really right. have to pound the crap out of it, cook the crap out of it to a point where it's then edible. So there were a lot of those foods that fire made edible. And what that ended up doing is it shortened our intestinal tract uh, so we have a much shorter gut because part of our digestive process is in cooking. And that's what, and, and the energy that we would otherwise go into having a large gut system like a, a gorilla would or a chimpanzee, we were allowed to, to, to shift that into our brains. And that's really what separates humans apart. We have tools and language and stuff like that. But I could I could talk about this all day long. But um, yeah, no. But in I terms can of see you've done a lot of in, in terms on of it. weight and loss, yeah. So I mean, I mean, that's that's basically why that was the big part of it. But then there was other some other parts as well. So that was controlling insulin levels. Through the month of April, I haven't done it quite as much in May. I did some extended fasts as well. So once you become fat adapted, which means that you've you've transitioned your body from burning glucose primarily as its fuel source to fat, and there are two energy sources that our body can use, uh, carbohydrates and fat, and it always wants to burn carbohydrates first because it needs to get it out of our blood. You can only have about a teaspoon worth of glucose in your blood, and the rest gets either turned to fat or it gets stored in your liver or, or your muscles. And you only have about 6 to 48 hours worth of glucose, but most people have a lot more fat. So once you stop consuming the carbohydrates, your body becomes accustomed to burning fats, 
um, you can shift from dietary fat to body fat really easy. And I, I found it just trivial to just, I just stopped eating. So I would, I, the first time I did it, it was by accident. I realized I forgot to eat one day and I just like, Oh, let's keep going on this. And I went four days without food. I would wow. then do a refeed and then I did a five day fast and I ended up doing a week long fast. And it also, uh, kicks in a, a cellular process called autophagy. Um, there's a fascinating case in the 1960s of a guy, his name was, uh, he was Scottish. Oh, what the hell was his name? Uh, it was the longest fast ever recorded. He went 380-some days without eating. He went down from 450 pounds to like 180 pounds. But the, <laughs> amazing, the amazing thing was, at the end of his fast, he had no loose skin. None. Hmm. And you've, if you've seen people of who've done extreme weight loss, or if you watch like My 600-Pound hmm. Life, they'll often have a lot of loose skin. And the process of autophagy, the name literally means to self-eat. And your body, after about 48 hours of fasting, it kicks into this process where it's recycling dead skin cells or dead cells, and it is uh, consuming things that it doesn't need, which is the opposite process of like growing extra skin when you gain weight uh, for, for extra fat tissue. So it's the opposite of that. So, and, and it's also a good way to just, you know, uh, to clean up your body. So even if you don't want to lose weight, to occasionally do it like a, a you know, a couple day fast a few times a year is, is widely considered to be therapeutic. And it's something, you know, that most major religions of the world always had as a part of their discipline. So uh, cutting out carbohydrates, <clears throat> fasting, that, that obviously helps because you're just not eating anything. So uh, changing the caloric content, reducing the caloric content. And then the other thing is I just walk. Um, so I've been But you used to walk a lot as a tourist. I yeah, mean, I did. But now, um, so I, I bought... And not a... only that, but you also had like the world's heaviest bag on your backpack with all your camera gear. Yes. So I, I've had a Fitbit for a couple of years, and I think the record I ever did for a single day was 25,000 steps. I remember I was in Vilnius uh, the day I did that. And I was really tired at the end of that day. And now I am, like today, uh, I did 22,000 steps. Didn't break a sweat. Right. Uh, right. In fact, I did a record. I did 46,000 steps uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm basically just sort of training myself. I saw Fitbit has different badges you can earn. And their top badge for a single day was 100,000 steps, which is approximately 50 miles, 85 kilometers. So mm. I'm going to try to do that by the end of the summer. And basi awesome. basically, it's just wake up really early one day yeah, <laughs> and walk. For you to walk yeah. all day long, uh, at the yeah. rate I can go, that's about sixteen miles an hour. Sixteen hours it would take. That's assuming I don't stop. Um, mm -hmm. So if I start at three or four in the morning, I, I think I should have uh, ample time. Uh, especially if I'm, if, you know, I can easily do twenty. I could, you know, thirty thousand steps a day now. So it's really just one good day of doing it. And uh, so I, I think I can do it. And I've been kind of doing lots of different routes from my house. So I have a plan for, for how I could do it. But, um, really at this point, it's just kind of getting the goal so that I can say I, I walked 50 miles in a day. Oh yes. You can definitely do it. And like you said, um, it's something that it's all about waking up early and not taking too many breaks and just walking at a steady four mile per hour pace. You know, it's just math. You'll, you'll get it done. You might end up at like midnight <laughs> when you're done, but that's all right. You know, and, and uh, people said, oh, are you going to start walking or are you going to start jogging? I'm like, no, I, I, I don't. There's not really that much benefit to it from an uh, energy expenditure standpoint. So if I walk 10 miles, um, that's 20,000 steps. I think that's about twelve to 1,300 calories I would burn in addition to the approximately 2,200 uh, uh, you know, an adult male at my weight would burn just by meta, normal metabolic activity. So you figure there's about, I think, 3,300 calories in a pound of body fat. So you, you can burn an extra third of a pound of fat per day by, by doing that. So long story short, changing the calories, because a calorie is not a calorie. The, the metabolic and hormonal changes of eating, you know, a teaspoonful of sugar is very different than eating a teaspoonful of fat or a teaspoonful of protein. So they're not the same. So I'm changing the, the, the quality of what I'm doing, changing the quantity of what I'm doing through intermittent fasting and extended fasting, and then also extending, uh, increasing my 
uh, calorie expenditure, which is also, in addition to just burning calories and, and, and burning fat stores, uh, you're also increasing muscle mass as well. Uh, and the other thing I'm going to probably start doing, so I think, so all the gyms have been closed and the, the apartment I live in has a, a gym and a pool that I haven't been able to use the last couple months. Uh, I'm going to probably start doing some strength training as well, uh, because that's, uh, something else. And the ultimate goal of all this is to lose enough weight. So one, no one recognizes me anymore if they meet me in person. <laughs> and two, to be able to do some things that I probably couldn't have done at a higher weight, which is include things like if I wanted to hike the Camino de Santiago or climb Mount Kilimanjaro, or I've even in the back of my head, and I know you've done a lot of this, uh, some of the longer hikes in the United States, um, that, that could be a possibility as well. Yeah, well, there's the Ice Age Trail right there in Minnesota's backyard. Uh, yeah, it's in Wisconsin, and I've actually joined the Facebook group for that. It's not as it's... well documented as something like the Pacific Coast or Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail, where True. It, it's not as challenging. It's you know, it's pretty flat. Um, yeah, but you know, as far as like where to stop and where to camp, uh, there's not a lot that is written about it. Um, it's approximately, I should hook you up with a friend of mine. His name is Linton. He's done it, I believe twice, maybe even three times. And he's, uh, he's, he's also done the Appalachian trail, the Pacific Crest trail, the Continental Divide trail. He, and I've actually hiked with him. He's a really hardcore hiker and he knows a lot, but he's done the ice. He's like, I think the ice age trail ambassador. So I should hook you up with him so that you at least need to know about it. Cause that's a nice trail too. It, it's only a thousand only yeah, a about a miles. about so, a thousand miles. Yeah, it does like an S shaped yeah. curve through Wisconsin, and it follows basically the the edge of the last glacier. So where a lot it of it doesn't uh, go into Minnesota at all. No, it starts right on the border of Minnesota on the Saint Croix River, and then works its way up to Door County, which is the the thumb if Wisconsin's a mitten. Um, it works its way up there in a kind of Got a it. circuitous route. It, it's it's not uh, direct. But yeah, when I research like the Pacific Crest Trail, there's so much like, oh, you can stay here and camp this night and then you get your stuff shipped here. And it's all really specific. And there's none of that for the Ice Age Trail. You might want to check out uh, Gut Hook. I've never used his app, but it's G-U-T Hook. And he might have a uh, like a cheat sheet, if you will, in the maps and the part, as part of his app. Because the way it works is you download the app for free and then you buy modules for it. So you buy the PCT module or the AT module, CDT module. And I, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if the, he has a Ice Age Trail module. But that is a resource I've never used, but I know people have been raving about it as being very useful. As far as like, where's the water? Where's the campsites? Where do you resupply? That kind of logistics stuff is important. So check out Gut, Gut Hook. Um, as a possibility. Uh, so how much do you weigh now, uh, Gary? Uh, about 220. So I'm almost down to where I was when I uh, before I started traveling, and my goal weight is to get to 175. Oh, wow. So you still got a, another yeah. 20. Yeah, I've not lost much in the last few weeks. I've kind of, because I did a lot of fasting, I sort of just... Um, I've just sort of been maintaining and refeeding. Uh, I, I'm pretty, you know... Uh, analytical about this. So I'm fasting, but you know, you don't want it to become an eating disorder or something. Although mm -hmm. I could probably use a good dose of eating disorder right now. I don't, can, <laughs> can you hear what's happening right now? Yeah, I can hear some, uh, the sirens or honking horns. There's a lot of honking horns. I don't know where it's coming mm -hmm. from. It's nonstop honking. So yeah. there's some, something's going on. Um, you know, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the, I know this is total non sequitur, but as, as far as the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, Oklahoma is a place that everybody goes and thinks nothing will ever happen in Oklahoma. And then boom, that happened. And same thing with Minnesota. It seems like the least likely place in the United States to ever have any kind of major issues. And here you guys are front and center of national news with all this, uh, the rioting and problems that you're having. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed it. I mean, to be completely honest. Like if someone had said, oh, there was, you know, a, an incident with a cop. Yeah, I could believe that. But the response is is not at all uh, what I expected. Not Minnesota nice. <laughs> and I think, to be honest, a lot of it has to do with um, the nature of what happened, that it was filmed and it was so blatant and obvious. There was really no, you know, he was just kneeling on the guy's neck. And, 
it, there wasn't a whole lot of subtlety or nuance or I, I haven't even, you know, going, you know, I, I read a lot of, that's getting much louder and I thought I heard a gunshot. Hmm. Um, but there wasn't a lot of nuance in this. I, I, I visit on a daily basis uh, websites on the political right and the political left. Uh, nobody was defending this. Really, there wasn't. Uh, and sometimes you'll see, you know, the pro-police, the pro-law and order people, and I, I haven't seen anything for this. Uh, wow, hold on one second. <laughs> okay, go ahead, go ahead. Holy shit. <laughs> so, so Gary's off to check his uh, window. Are you on the, I wonder if he's on the second floor or what? But I, he can't hear me right now. But. No, I can hear you. Um, okay. So I'm on the sixth floor, the top floor of my uh, building. There's a helicopter hovering very close to where I am, uh, much, much closer than what it was last night, which is where it was over when the police station burned. And there are a lot of cars honking, and that appears yeah. to be coming. Uh, there's an interstate not far away, and I'm wondering if someone is doing a protest on the interstate and they've closed it off. That's my guess. I, I don't know yet. I haven't checked out the news. Um, wow. So, and it's just, it's nonstop honking. So. Yeah, I can hear it. I can hear it loud and clear. Um, well, yeah, Minnesota never will be the same after that incident. They're going to have to reform. Now I'm hearing shouting. Human voices. Mm. Fuck. So how are you going to, uh, I guess, I think also the coronavirus probably made people a little bit more edgier than normal. I, I, I believe it's a contributing factor. I don't know how much it is, but the fact that everything's been shut down. And that just to a lot of, you know, the small businesses that were hurt. That's just, you know, this is all just on top of that. You got to remember. I know. That's that's what I feel so much. This is crazy. For businesses. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, crazy. Well, yeah, I was I was going to talk to you anyhow about because I know you've done a lot of long distance hiking, and um, this is something I was I was thinking about doing, and I I think I'm I don't know I'm getting close to a point where I could probably do a, a longer you know uh, hike at this point. So yeah, no, that's I, I think that's a great idea, and you just have to decide how many uh, how much time you want to take for example there's like the, have you heard of the Hayduk trail hay no. and d-u-k-e that's kind of a again a, a shorter trail you know so el camino santiago is is, is well it's as long as you want it to be it can be as little as 100 kilometers to as much as whatever a thousand or not thousand uh two thousand five thousand kilometers i mean people have walked from any distance this is getting closer to me <laughs> <laughs> this is whoever's listening well, to this podcast like this is <laughs> this is live happening out my window right now. <laughs> well, I will publish it right away. Wow. So people. No, um, I got, I mean, once we're, we're off the air, I'll, f- I'll find out more what's happening, but, um, wow. Yeah. Is it getting, is it getting louder? It, it's clearly a protest. I don't know where it's coming from or what street they're on. You know, sometimes it's funny, like I, I look at us and I think to ourselves, wow, we really are like primates. You know, it, it comes very clear that we are kind of an, an ape in the sense that from a purely rational perspective, um, when you see an injustice like this, it's kind of like, you know, somebody gets an innocent person gets killed. And then all of a sudden I decide to then go burn down a building of another innocent <laughs> I mean, it's just like that. Like, seems like such an emotional primate-like behavior, like a like a lizard brain, if you will. It doesn't, you know, logically speaking, there's just it's indefensible. You cannot explain that. I, at least I can't. Maybe you can. Can you hear that now? Yeah, yeah. Of course, I can hear loud and clear. Um, yeah. yeah it, you know, like I said, this is not the first time in human history this has happened. It's not the last. Um, there's been lots of different causes of riots. Uh, are you familiar with the Civil War riots that happened, the draft riots in New York? Um, 
and you know when you when you look back in our history, just the, just American history, not even in in war, across the world, uh, Civil War riots were violent. Uh, it was partially if you ever saw the movie The Gangs of New York, they uh, had mm. a scene where that yeah, happened, yeah. and they killed hundreds of people. So, yeah, it's it it. It, it's one of those things that I think sociologists need to, to look at. And, you know, I think that the police need to consider this. You know, you can't just indefinitely do whatever you want because you're the authority and expect no reaction. Right. All right, Gary. Well, I'll let you figure out what's going on in your neighborhood there. Yeah, this and, is going to uh, go up. I'm going to do something on Instagram. I don't know if the video will show up, but at least the audio will. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, remind everybody, everything everywhere is uh, your handle pretty much most places. Yeah, it uh, it's everything everywhere on Twitter, but just look for my name, Gary Arndt. I'm super yeah. easy to find online. Yeah. I'm on everything, so you can figure it out. Wonderful. Hey, Gary, uh, enjoy. I'm not going to say stay safe because I think you are safe. <laughs> and uh, But uh, I hope uh, your community at least uh, is able to process this tragedy in a healthy rational way um, me too and I'm very way. curious to find out what is happening around me right now because it's getting loud alright well uh, we'll talk to you later then okay thanks see ya okay, alright well I guess we should have done this live because <laughs> that would have been cool yeah like Instagram live and that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.